Everybody just feels like everybody's settling, isn't it? Just kind of settling in. It's a good thing. Good morning to you. Scripture says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, 58, it says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes, you know, you just feel like um, as a pastor that you just kind of need to pastor. And uh, just for a moment before we start the message, I just kind of want to pastor a little bit. Uh, take this for whatever it's worth. But, you know, sometimes we get excited about other victories, don't we? And, uh, and I, I'm just going to be honest with you. Several years ago, I'm just going to get naked a little bit here. Several years ago, I went to a, to a game, a rivalry game in state between two major colleges. And our team had been beaten for several years in a row. And we won that game. And it's like we had just been released, you know. We were just celebrating. And I remember I, I took it a little too far. And I said something to a, a, an opposing fan. I just thought it was just a random, unknown opposing fan. I didn't curse or anything. It wasn't majorly belittling or anything. I was just excited that our team had won. And I drove back here to Jackson. When I got home, my wife said to me, Wow, Robert, it looks like, according to Facebook, you taunted someone at the game. And do you remember this, babe? It was, anybody know Cliff and Amy Bates? But I had said something to Cliff. I didn't... I didn't recognize the guy, unfortunately, and I said something probably that I shouldn't have said, kind of in a, you know, exulting a little bit. But, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny when I say the following, you know, Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, but only that which edifies, which builds up. And it's fun to talk smack and stuff like that, but let's make sure that we really do build uh, people up. Do you agree with that, that we can work together to realize what we do have in common? Galatians 3 says there's one Lord uh, uh, one faith, one baptism. It says that, that uh, whether we're Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female, uh, that we're one in Christ. And so I just want to encourage you to do that. Sometimes you, like me, uh, you go past that stop sign. Last Sunday at church, I said hello to a woman after the 11 o'clock service. She's my neighbor. Susan's met her, but I hadn't met her before. And when, when I, we, we gave each other a hug, and she said, yeah, I live two doors down and right there on the corner. And I knew right when she said that I had to apologize for running that stop sign that's right there on the corner. She goes, well, I don't really care, but some of the other neighbors have been talking a little bit, Pastor. <laughs> but I've always thought stop stands for slight tap on pedal. And, uh, and I do that. Amanda, you, you've seen me just running past that stop sign or whatever. But sometimes we do that with Ephesians 4.29. I feel like that passage is a stop sign for us. Let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, but only that which builds up. And so... Uh, let's build each other up. And I think what, what we're saying today is, and I've lived long enough to know that if I'm celebrating a victory, uh, it won't be long from now. I'll be, uh, I'll be observing a defeat, right? And, uh, but what I love about what Paul says is, man, God has given us the victory in Christ Jesus. Therefore, it says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. There's a victory that, that really, really does matter. Uh, there is a, a little victory I would like to celebrate. You guys know that we have, for all the month of November, we have not shaved a select group of men in our church. Jeff, Jason, David, Gary, myself. And you'll notice this morning we did, many of us, get up and shave. Um, I was in last place. These were the results all of November. Uh, David Sego had the lead. Jason was second. We didn't even capitalize his last name. That's what we think of Jason. Um, <laughs> And then you'll see some guys, uh, most of these guys are uh, fellows in our church. And then number 17, can you see that all the way to the bottom, was Robert Green. And that's from November 1st to the 30th. That was the standings. And then I think just hot off the presses, our final results are in. 
And uh, the most money raised right there. Isn't that great? Right there from worst to first. Just like Auburn. I mean, just, yeah, there you go. Straight from there. But David, how'd that happen? Something happened at the last minute there. It wasn't like that, but some anonymous donor um, pulled me through. Isn't that great? So I'm just excited and I'm, I'm rubbing it in a little bit, taunting. Well, what a week it's been for me, uh, probably for you in some respects. And man, the holidays, it brings it out, doesn't it? I mean, it, what it many times throughout the year is concealed over the holidays gets revealed. And it is, it is what it is. I think some of you uh, know what I'm referring to, but... Man, it's the song says it's the most wonderful time of the year. Anybody been listening to 105.1? Uh, they started playing right before Halloween. They started playing Christmas music 24-7. But uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And I, I really think that there's a barometer that tests that theory. Is it the most wonderful time of the year? I think if, if it was one word, that barometer I would say is family. Family. If things are good you feel blessed in that department, then it's probably the most wonderful time of the year. But if there's drama, if there's stress, if there's hurt, if there's loss, estrangement, it could be the toughest time of the year. Um, This morning, I'm going to use some notes and a music stand. Uh, Oftentimes on Saturday, I'll memorize or familiarize a sermon, but I just had quite a week. This one just got written, just got finalized uh, late last night. But I want to talk to you this morning about family from Colossians chapter 3. I'd love for you to turn there. Some of you already are in your actual Bibles. Um, I got a new one. Somebody got me a new Bible. Who gives a pastor a Bible? That's crazy. Colossians chapter 3. You may want to turn in your actual Bible or open up a Bible app to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 18 through 21. And this morning, as we consider family, I will tell you that it's been on the forefront of my experience this week with my own family, but also with dear friends, a couple that I I wed. I married them about five years ago. Uh, I'm not their pastor so much. They choose not to be a part of Fondren Church. Could you imagine that? But uh, they're part of another church, but uh, they called me this week when, um, when they knew it was time for for their mom to pass, for her mom to pass. And for three years, she's been in a, a battle with cancer. They said it's time to go home, and, and Lindsay knew that it was just a matter of days. And when I got the call, I ended up spending a good part of a day and an evening with this family. And right there in the bedroom with a hospice nurse and the closest families, a woman just not old, not an elderly woman, just a woman a couple of years older than me, clung to life and labored in her breathing. And this sweet couple that I know and love sat there, Lindsay next to her mama. I'd kept my composure. I'd prayed a prayer for the family and was busy. There's a lot of laughter in the room. This woman had lived a really good life. A lot of laughter, a lot of memories. The hospice nurse had said, have you ever been there? The hospice nurse said, hey, at this point, she's not going to be responsive to you, but in all likelihood, she can hear much of what you're saying. And that was a green light for this family just to start speaking into her. They were recounting memories, memories I did not know of. And my sweet friend leaned forward and was stroking her mom's bald head, kissing her forehead. Said, Mama, we 
We didn't give you grandkids, but we're going to one day. You would have been such a great, great grandmother to these babies. It's just one of those moments you realize that, man, family really does matter, doesn't it? Like it really, really matters. And this morning we're going to look at a passage that when you see it, you're going to resist it probably for obvious reasons. But it's really beautiful. And I really believe... I love what Romans 12 says. We can, we can be squeezed into the mold of the world or we can live differently. And this morning, I, I just feel compelled to say that if you want what the world has, just keep on doing those things. Do what's normal. But if you want what few have, do it this way. Colossians chapter 3. Are y'all there? Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 21. You ready to resist? Wives, submit to your husbands. Go ahead, everybody just moan a little bit. Just moan out loud. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Father, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Think about the family in our day and time. I was looking this week on the endangered species list. You ever surf the web on the endangered species list? There is 10,000 animals that are on the brink of extinction. 9,000 plants, but we don't care so much about plants. Here's some of the animals on that, on that list. This is the uh, Abbott booby. Anybody sad that we could be losing the Abbott booby? Y'all are too concerned about the rainforest and stuff. Uh, next up is the rice rat. Here, the next animal on the list of extinction is, uh, that's the fruit bat. Next up, a salamander, particular kind of salamander. And then the one I'm really scared about that we're losing is a brush-tailed wallaby. That's sad, isn't it? Really. These are animals that are on the brink. May not. We may not have them anymore. And you know, there's something missing from the list. From the endangered species list. And I would say to you this morning, it's the joyful, tight-knit Christian family. What happened to those? I'm not going to go Norman Rockwell nostalgia on you. But where are the families who really do share life together these days. Distractions, diversions, handheld devices, hectic schedules, all form a wall against being built together, being tightly knit. There's temptations at every turn. It sucks the life out of family. Family is suffering today. Do you agree with that? There's, there's some real suffering going on for the family. I remember several years ago, Susan and I attended a conference for pastors and their wives, and it was at a very posh resort. I mean, one of those resorts where they leave chocolate on the pillows, you know, at, at night, and they have uh, uh, towels folded up in the shape of certain animals. And the, the, the people who worked the hotel, all of the resort staff had on name tags. That was very helpful. And it had their name, and it didn't have some normal biographical data like where they're from or what they do with the hotel, but it had their name and it said the word passion. And it had a quick description 
of what they're passionate about. Food, travel, music, the like. And I remember on the last day there, I asked the, the, one of the managers there, what is the most popular passion of your employees? What is it that most of your employees say, this is what we're most passionate about? And the number one answer, family. Most of us say that family is most important. But why then? Why then do we feel the distance? Why are there so many children who don't feel valued, loved, and important, cherished in their homes? Why is the rate the way that it is with divorce and separation, alienation? A couple of years ago, from right here, I stood up here and made a claim. I said that if you look at our society, big picture, that we have for so many years, for for a number of decades, we've improved. We have made great progress with science, medicine, technology. Everyone would agree, right? I mean, I don't want to go back to the way it was. Do you? Not in those areas. We've made great progress. But every other area, as it relates to emotional, mental health, and our relational well-being has been in a pretty steep plane of decline. I've kind of worked through a little bit of this as I, talked to, as I thought about this progress. What does progress give you? Think about what progress gives us as a society. I've, I've made a list. Progress gives us more technology, more computers, more information, more news, more communication, more choices, more commitments, more television, more email, more social media, more decisions, more possessions, more printers, more media, more cell phones, more accessibility, more activities, and what we don't realize a lot of times, more expectations. Next, progress gives us more multitasking, more stress, more imbalance, more hurry, more clutter, more debt, more change, more intensity, more speed, more anxiety, more work, more complexity, more overload, more burnout, more interruptions. Then progress gives us more gambling, more predators, more antidepressants, more obesity, more insomnia, more terrorism, more casinos, more internet viruses, more fast food, more diabetes, more entitlements, more illicit drugs, more pornography, more spam, more calories, more heart disease, more budget deficits. We think because it's more and more, faster and faster, that it's better and better. But is it? And what is this progress? What is this progress doing to you and to your soul and to your family? You see, if we look, like I have done, at progress very discriminately, in the midst of the blessings, there are the burdens. There's, there's a curse. And it's cutting us at the heart of our relationships. And it's hitting family the hardest. Now, when we read a passage that has to do with marriage and family, there are some of you that want to check out because you're in the not yet category. Not yet. And some of you are in the no longer category. Maybe you've been there. But when we, when we teach on marriage, just on marriage, when the church teaches on marriage, everybody ought to listen. That's not the preacher this morning asking you not to zone out. But marriage is important. And do you know why? I recommend a book by Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. But he talks there biblically from Genesis to Revelation. He talks about how that it is an image, it is a parable pouring forth this image that God wants to give our world through us. 
And to understand this passage, we need to understand that the intention of Scripture, if you never picked up on it, is that the wife is the church and the husband is Christ. And that together, we show the world a fleshly, albeit imperfect demonstration of forbearance, of forgiveness, of faithfulness. That's God's design. That's His intention. Some young people were once asked, I read this uh, earlier this week, some young people were asked their thoughts on marriage, dating, even kissing. How do you decide who to marry? Alan, a 10-year-old, said, you've got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. If you like sports, she should like, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> what do people do on a date? Martin, age 10, says on the first date, they should tell each other lies. And that usually gets them interested enough to go on a second date. When is it okay to kiss? Pam, age eight, says, when they're rich. (laughs) Kirk, age seven, says the law says you have to wait to 18. So I wouldn't want to mess with that. (laughs) Sounds like Kirk's got some shady folks in his family. How can you make a marriage work? Ricky, age 11, says, tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. (laughs) You see some wisdom, some wisdom, in what those kids are saying, Alan, Martin, Pam, Kurt, and Ricky. Ricky Bobby, by the way, when he was much younger. But here we see some better advice. What does the scripture say? We're going to break this down for a few minutes. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Well, let's take on number one. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Let's do this at Fonder Church this morning. Just turn to somebody next to you. And what does that mean? To talk about that. What does that mean to be submissive? I mean, should the church teach this anymore? What does that mean? That was a short discussion. Because some of you are sitting by your spouse and you just had the submission discussion earlier this week and it didn't go well for you, right? There's a gap between your understanding of Colossians 3.18 and their understanding. That's why you pay me the big bucks, right? Here's what it's not. Don't you love you? The scripture does that. Some of you teach, right? You're an educator of sorts and you know you compare and contrast. Proverbs is beautiful, at doing that. You see this in many passages of Scripture. In order to tell us what something is, we need to be told what it's not. And I can't think of an area more important than this. Here's what it's not. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. It doesn't mean inferiority. Now, note takers may want to write down, this is not value, it's function. Okay? It's not capacity, it's roles. 
Now, it's Thanksgiving. Don't write R-O-L-L-S, but write R-O-L-E-S, okay? It's not value. It's function. It's, it's not capacity. It's roles. Now, a show of hands here. How many of you know a couple where the wife is generally, in most areas, she just seems more intelligent and capable than the husband? Y'all know any, any, any couples like that? If you're married, guys, you really should raise your hand. In fact, you should not only raise your hand, you should go... Like that. That's the, those are the nonverbals you should be doing at this point. But I know a lot. And look, look, Susan has me. She is superior in so many categories. Some of you have heard me admit this, but I'm not good fixing things. Well, doggone it, she is. I mean, that just makes it worse. It exacerbates the problem. And our children, through the years, they have had something break, a toy or something like that. They'll walk right past dad who's sitting on the couch and right to Susan. They'll go to mom to fix something. Now, that just, that takes away my manhood, doesn't it? And that's why I go out and get in a Ford F-150 and listen to country music, right? But I'm telling you, I just can't do some of these things. This isn't, a, this isn't a statement as some of us have used. We've wielded it like a sword, like a blunt object. We have misrepresented what Jesus wants to represent to the world if we teach that this is value and not function, if it's capacity, not roles. Anything... With two heads is a monster. Do you get that? There has to be roles. If there aren't roles in a home, roles on a football field, roles to be played in a church, I see this as a pastor throughout the the New Testament. Uh, From beginning to end, God says, hey, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, there needs to be leadership. And if there's a lack of leadership, the scripture says that Israel did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. How does that work for a church? How does that work for a team? How does that work for a family? When everybody is just doing what's right in their own eyes. And God says, here's how you avoid confusion. Here's how you avoid conflict. Have you noticed that if there's a lack of leadership, the first thing to happen is confusion? What's going on here? Who's in charge? I mean, oftentimes we want to we want to say who's in charge. You ever been with a group of 10 or 15 people and you're congregating in a room and you're all going to something? But you're waiting and you're waiting, but you're having a good conversation. You're enjoying your company. But somebody finally speaks up and they say, who are we waiting on? And then you realize, not waiting on anybody. You just don't have a leader. You just don't have a leader. Uh, a couple of months ago, 20 of us, 10 couples bought tickets to go see the John Maxwell play, Sigmund Freud's dialogue with C.S. Lewis. The plan was meet at, um, meet at Jocko Tacos at about 6 o'clock. And then we're going to go see the play. We all congregated. It was a rainy, rainy night. And we congregated. And we had a great meal and great time together. And somebody looked at the watch. We had five or ten minutes to get to the play at Bellhaven. And we walked in two minutes late, three minutes late. And they shut us out. you got to be at these things on time. We had 20 people. They weren't going to let 20 people come in. Now, whose fault is that? Gary Watts. That's exactly right. (laughs) And I still resent him for that. But, you know, we like, Gary probably thought I was lead, and I thought he was lead, and he had organized the night. Well, I'm the senior pastor. Whatever. But we missed the play because we lacked a leader. Sometimes there's just this vacuum of leadership. And God is saying in order to avoid confusion, in order to not miss the play, not to miss out on life, in order to maximize the full potential for man and woman and children and others, there needs to be a leader. 
Every couple that comes into my office for pre-marriage counseling, we talk significantly about the roles. You see, I don't have a hidden agenda. I don't sit there and say that I know the right way. I mean, I think Colossians 3, 18 to 21 is the right way. But I don't think that, that this means that, um, that you know, the, let me say this. Let me put it this way. The scripture doesn't say this role, that role, this role, that role, this role, that role. You get that, right? It gives us some general principles that we ought to live out in the home. So, Wives submit. It's not about inferiority, number one. Secondly, it's not about embracing traditional values or traditional roles. Now, that's offensive to some of you. Women, you don't have to be June Cleaver. But there is a division of labor. I tell some of you, you've heard me say it, that I feel like one of the reasons God is blessing our home and that our marriage is functioning to some degree of health, wouldn't you say, sweetie? is that there's a pretty clear division of labor. Just say aloud, amen. You know what you, you just you say amen. Would you agree? Um, we know what Susan does. They know what I do. They know her strengths, her role, her function. We know my strengths, my roles, my function. You need to establish what that is. But this passage, it doesn't say, women, that you are to be June Cleaver. It doesn't say that you have to play solely the role of homemaker and not breadwinner and whatever. And I understand some of this is pragmatically driven, but do understand this. What it's not saying is very important. It's also not saying, thirdly, it's not saying absolute submission. Now, I'll open up a can here. Uh, I say this at the risk of being misunderstood, but fellas, look at me. Your wife, if you're married, if you're dating, there's no submission involved. But if, if you're married, your wife's ultimately accountable to Christ, as are you. And that's why it says in this passage, as is fitting in the Lord. There's a lot of non-fitting submission trying to be forced on people in our day, don't you think? But it is not fitting. It is not fitting. And it is worse. Have you noticed some things when you try to force them? They backfire. Melinda, uh, several weeks ago, talked about anger, like being a beach ball. When you, if you hold it in, you suppress it underwater and it pops up. Forced submission, submission that's not fitting is like that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to spew up. It's going to be very, very ugly. So submission is not what? It's not inferiority. It's not embracing traditional roles or values as we have come to understand it at times. And it's not absolute submission. Well, what is it? Here we go. It's respect. It's respect. It's respect, honor, affirm. I see a lot of women who command, slander, and humiliate. It's respect. It's honor. It's affirm. Ladies want to know this. Ladies love affection. That's what they need. Men need affirmation. A woman wants to know, does he love me today? A man wants to know, do you believe in me today? Now, gentlemen, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to get deep into your psyche. And I'm going to tell your lady what you're afraid to or unable to. Ladies, he may seem confident. But most men are pathetically insecure. We live in this world that drills into us as men. You are only as good as your last accomplishment. If you were a top sales guy last month, how about this month? 
If you took your company up 20%, what's next? 25%. Our self-worth evaporates with our last accomplishment. You know, in my line of work, there's a lot of critics. Could you imagine that? None of you, but they come to the 11 o'clock service. People that aren't in church on the holiday weekend. It's those people we're talking about. But in my line of work, there's a lot of critics. I have a friend, Scott McLeod. A lot of you know Scott. He's probably out in the deer woods this weekend. But Scott's an anesthesiologist. And I tell people that Scott and I, what we have in common vocationally is we both put people to sleep. But what we don't have in common is that people don't come up to him a lot and tell him how to do his job. And I'm not asking for your sympathy. But what I do want you to do is understand. In my line of work, I really need Susan. Without an encouraging wife, I could easily become discouraged and doubt myself. But with her, I can shake off the negative. I can do some great things. I remember about a year ago, I was on this journey and had to make a couple of decisions. And they were lonely decisions. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says, loneliness stalks where the buck stops. And I got wise counsel from godly men and women in our church. I sought it out. Wise people do that. Read Proverbs. Gain instruction. Listen to advice. And I did. But I had to enter into this tunnel and have a couple of really difficult conversations. You're curious what I'm talking about, aren't you? You'll never know. But I I had to do it. Some of you, you get this. But it was hidden. It was, this wasn't the tip of the iceberg, as we say. This was the iceberg below the surface. And I remember walking right there. I mean, I'm pointing 60 yards, or 60 yards from it, right out there one day. I remember coming from one appointment to the next and entering into my office. And I looked down at my phone, and it was my wife. She texted me, and she said, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of how you've handled this. Nobody gets this or understands it, but you've handled it. You've honored Jesus and you've honored other people and how you've handled this. It's not easy, but I'm proud of you. Now, every man needs that. You remember when I said most men are pathetically insecure? I'd like to join the ranks. You may be looking for another church. But I think I'm with all these other bozos. And that's what a man needs. I've said this before. But if you want to see a man at his worst, go out there and find a man today. Do this when you leave church. Go find a man and disrespect him. You better run. But if you want to see a man at his best, respect him. And when that man receives respect, at the most intimate level of relationship, he is at his best. Women, do you see the power? What you recoil at, what you want to resist, is really a good, life-giving affirmation. Respect your man. A second, a second thing that submission is, it's respect and it's also depend, dependence. It's kind of weird to talk about, sad in fact, but... There's a, there's a couple of things that can happen to our body, biologically, medically speaking. I know there's several doctors in the room, so I won't go into detail and be wrong about any of these. But you've seen people have convulsions, haven't you? And maybe you've experienced someone with a stroke. And when someone has a convulsion, their body is acting wild and erratic. 
rebellious, if you will. It's acting independent from the head. And when someone has a stroke, the body is acting indifferent and unresponsive. It too is acting independently from the head. And this whole headship thing, women, you need to involve your man. I'm not saying be codependent, but you need to be dependent on him. You need to give him responsibility. Help him in that. If your man doesn't feel needed, he will feel neutered. And then, let me tell you what happens to that man. I've seen it. They begin to function as children who need to be taken care of. Men withdraw when they feel unnecessary. But when they're respected, when they're needed, and they know that they're needed, you know what a man does? He rises to the occasion. Now, this is where it gets tricky. This is where marriage counselors earn their money. Some men are idle because of their wives' independence. Some women are independent because of their husbands' idleness. You get that? The women, if you show him, according to Colossians 3, if you, if you submit to him, you're showing him respect and dependence and allowing him to exercise responsibility as a man. I love the story, true story, of the woman who... She died. And they were having her funeral in this big, grand church. And as the, at the end of the funeral, they were taking the casket out. And they were walking out this way toward the end of the back of the church. And inadvertently, the pallbearers, they, they, they bumped the casket up against the wall. And they heard this echo, this faint moan coming from the casket. Remarkably, this woman was alive. She went on to live 10 more years, almost 10 more years. And at the funeral, same church, same preacher, same scenario. They're taking her back out. Of the, the pallbearers are walking the casket out. And the husband stands up from the front row and he yells out, watch out for that wall. Yeah. Live in such a way. Live in such a way that that won't happen to you one day. Your man, he'll want you. He'll want to be with you. There'll be room. There'll be freedom. There'll be a lack of tension. There'll be life that's given because of that. Husbands are to love their wives and not to be harsh. There's a couple things that this means that it's not. First of all, tyranny. It's not tyranny. To be the head, to have the wife submit, means to you men that it's not a right to rule. It's a responsibility that you bear. You get that? It's not a right to rule. It's a responsibility to... to, To bear bullying, controlling, having your wife and children walk around on eggshells is tyranny. Young women, beware of a man who speaks harshly to his mom, to his sisters. Look very discriminately at how he treats women. Is he a tyrant? How does he treat that special woman, that mom or that sister or sisters or other people, look for that. That will tell you a lot about the potential for you and him. It's not tyranny. It's also not apathy. A lot of men are disengaged. They're detached. They're cold. They're silent. They're not paying attention. Here's the role. Here's what loving her in a way that isn't harsh. Here's what it looks like. You see, Colossians 3 has a corresponding passage. Do you know this? It's Ephesians 5. And here's this corresponding passage in the message. 
Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. Bam. Ephesians 5, 26 to 28 in the message. Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, the Passover, the Last Supper, as we call it, he had been teaching his disciples, his closest followers, about servanthood. And you know, if you know the New Testament, you know they struggle with this idea of servanthood. They had just prior to that had an argument over who is the greatest in the kingdom. Who gets the chief seats? Not just in the synagogues, but in the next life. Who gets to be around the throne? These disciples were arguing over. They even had parental support in their argument. And Jesus, it occurred to him, the master teacher, they weren't getting just the teaching. They needed to see a demonstration. Now, he knew that the cross was inevitable. But he got down on that night, as you know. Gets up, grabs a towel, a basin, water. One by one, foot by foot, probably callous to callous. The master, the one with the pure heart, washes those filthy feet. And here's what he said. I've set an example for you. This is John 13. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You see, there's a progression here. I wrote it like this last night. It's good to see Jesus' example of serving. Wouldn't you agree? That's good to see. It's better to understand the call to servanthood. Even more important. But it's best if you do it. That kind of love, it's a servant love. It's remarkable to me to see how men will work at work, but not serve at home. I know a guy who is an airplane mechanic. He works on hydraulics all day, but he won't go home. He acts like he can't slide a plate into the dishwasher. Serve, work, and love. It says, children obey your parents in everything. We've all seen it, hadn't we? A five-year-old who demands a Snickers bar in the grocery store and he manipulates and gets loud with that father. He goes on and on. He's embarrassing himself. Other people hear it. And he demands and he demands. And what happens? He walks out with chocolate on his mouth and sticky fingers, right? Or maybe like me recently, you stop behind a school bus only to receive a special sign from an angel sitting in the back. You know what I'm talking about? And I began to think, how do we turn out kids who will encourage the handicapped rather than make fun of them? Who graffiti their Bibles with insights rather than bathroom stalls with profanity? Quickly, I'm going to read a top 10 list that was posted. Bill Gates shared this among some students. Top 10, life is not fair, get used to it. The world won't care about your self-esteem. The world will expect you to accomplish something before you feel good about it. You will not make 75000 a year right out of high school. If you think your teacher's tough, wait till you get a boss. Flipping burgers is not beneath your dignity. Your grandparents had a word for burger flipping. They called it opportunity. If you mess up, it might not be your parents' fault. Don't whine about it. Before, you're born, before you were born, your parents weren't as boring as they are now. They got that way from paying your bills, cleaning your clothes, listening to you talk about how cool you thought you were. 
So before you go save the rainforest from the parasites of your parents' generation, try cleaning the closet in your own bedroom. Your school may have done away with winners and losers, but life is not. In some schools, they have abolished failing grades and they'll give you as many times as you want to get the right answer. This doesn't bear the slightest resemblance to anything in real life. Life is not divided into semesters. You don't get summers off and very few employees are interested in helping you find yourself. Do that on your own time. Television is not real life. In real life, people actually have to leave the coffee shop and go to jobs. And Bill Gates added an 11. Be nice to nerds. Chances are you'll end up working for one. (laughs) We're raising entitled children. We're making some plans for 2014. And part of what that means for our family is breaking the pride and entitlement that we have wrongly instilled in our own kids. You see, we're with you in this journey. Children obey. Fathers don't provoke. I believe that you have to be dads, you have to be parented by God before you can parent properly. It really helps me not to have the profession that I'm in. One writer, Eugene Peterson, the guy that wrote the Message Bible, talks about the perils of professional Christianity. I don't say this because I'm a pastor. I say it because I'm a Christ follower. But I need to know that my God is a heavenly father. And he is slow to compassion, or he's quick with compassion and kindness and slow to anger. That's how he parents me, and he disciplines me. Only he has the perfect balance of what's tough and what's tender, and I've got to figure it out along the way. This scripture says that wives ought to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It says that husbands are to love their wives and to not be harsh with them. It says that children are to obey their parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord, and that fathers are not to provoke their children unless they be, lest they become discouraged. So backing up a bit, as I said earlier, look at this passage. It's easy to see this subject, especially with marriage, and say, not yet, I'm not there yet. Or to say, no longer, I've been there, and it's a source of pain for me. But many of us are here, And we need the grace. We need the wisdom that Christ can give. I wonder, church, if we're going to live differently from the world. To borrow the words from one pastor in Oklahoma, Craig Rochelle, it's time for us to realize that normal is not working. Normal's broken. It's time to be weird. I think it's time to look seriously at what God teaches us, to learn from it, to live it out. Would you pray? God, we thank you for family. Lord, I thank you for a peak this week into the life of a family who lost somebody special who in her very own master bedroom with sisters and parents and children around and grandkids there was love and laughter but a sense of loss for Lord you have established the family 
And it is now apparent that it's an endangered species of sorts. The tight-knit, joy-filled home that you intended. Lord, I would pray that we, as Fondren Church, would fight for the family. Lord, that we would allow you to strengthen us. This passage flows from this idea that we would let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. And Lord, this teaching this morning that in some ways we want to resist, I pray that we would learn from and understand. I pray for the hurt in the room, for those who are the no longer. I pray that our church would just fuse with grace and goodness, for we are a family. And we know we want to know and love and and serve and be served for those who are in that no longer category and those who are in the not yet Lord we would pray for them not to make mistakes and Lord to move with wisdom and see what you say and for those of us married for those of us parenting God we pray for great grace for these next few weeks are such a telltale sign of where we are on this journey Lord, help the husbands and wives to fulfill their roles. For women to be loved and men to be respected and children to be brought up in a way. We give this to you, Jesus. 